tell you who's doing sneakers the best in the game right now. That's New Balance. The two-way V4, featuring this groundbreaking use of technology with fresh foam. It's called Fuel Cell, creating this combination that we love of rebound and cushioning. Fresh Foam offers unparalleled cushioning for maximum comfort your entire game from start to finish. The upper construction features this lightweight textile that reduces weight, which we all need, I know I do, while remaining supportive and breathable. Hard to find that combo. The two-way V4 gives you the tools that you need to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way V4 at newbalance.com. You're listening to the, the, the hottest, the hottest NBA podcast out. Yeah, I said what I said. She's heating up. It's the Heat Check. The Heat Check. Heat Check. With Tristan Crick. On this episode of the Heat Check, we've got a loaded show to get you ready for the weekend. I am all fired up about Zach Levine. Zach Levine. Who gets fired up about Zach Levine? I do! It's Friday, so it's Back to the Futures on NBA Coach of the Year. We get into some news of the week, and finally, we have a full-blown no-holds-bar interview with Samson Folk of the Raptors Republic, who's here to break things down for Toronto. Are they headed for a rebuild? So much to talk about. Let's get right into it, William. Drop that motherfucking beat. We should be Rihanna. We gotta talk about Zach Levine. I am fired up about Zach Levine. I am as surprised as you guys are, people. No one on God's green earth feels any kind of passion uh, except for to talk smack about Zach Levine's knee. But here we are. Here we are. I had Lawrence Holmes on of Chicago's Bernstein and Holmes show on WSCR for my five good minutes on my mini episode on Wednesday. So check out the feed, by the way. We debated whether the Bulls were going into rebuild mode. And he was very adamant that any trade of Zach Levine was a signal that the bridge was being blown up. It looks like we are about to cross the Rubicon, folks, because both sides are sick of each other's shit. Apparently, not only does Zach Levine want to be out of Chicago, Chicago wants Zach Levine to be out of Chicago. They're calling and being like, hey, we heard you were interested in Zach Levine. It's like, no, I didn't say that. Where'd you hear that? Oh, just just heard it through the grapevine. Are you? Are you? What would it take? What would it take for you to get this $40 million boat anchor off of our hands? He's really good. He can shoot the three. His handles are awesome. He's fourth quarter scoring. Pretty good. Decision making. He's a bucket. He's a bucket. He's a bucket. What's his defensive rating? I don't know. You're going to have to do that research yourself. Things are about to get ugly. Apparently, Zach Levine is still butthurt. That he got sat last year by Billy Donovan in a random regular season game. According to Daniel Greenberg, Levine has never ever gotten over Donovan benching him late in a loss to the Magic on November 18, 2022, after he had four points on one for 14 shooting. Are we serious? Like, Zach, Zach Levine, are you fucking kidding me? From the Bulls side, Joe Crowley of the Sun-Times reported that there have been growing questions by teammates and the coaching staff about Zach Levine's accountability going back to last season. There are games in which he was pouty, after a win, and then losses in which teammates didn't understand where he was directing the blame publicly, said a source. Apparently, uh, DeMar DeRozan, who's very tight with Levine, has served as a buffer between him and other teammates and officials, but even that hasn't been able to keep the relationship from souring. (laughs) Oh my goodness. 
Zach Attack is getting absolutely traded. He's not even bothering to deny the trade rumors now. The most likely landing spot are the Lakers and the Heat. Although I do think he fits the Knicks better than anybody else. One thing is for sure, folks. The Bulls organization now knows what we all know. What they end up looking like, we won't know. But at least until after the trade deadline, it's going to be rocky. Folks, we've been saying this. This team makes no fucking sense. No Lonzo Ball, lots of problems. Zach Levine is not your number one option. And for a man that's getting paid $40 million, you kind of need that guy to be your number one option. And the other thing that we know, Zach Levine is going to keep shooting no matter where he ends up, even when he has one knee. Let's move on. Back to the futures, baby. It's Friday. Back to the futures. We check back into the NBA betting futures market. Today is our first check-in on the coach of the year market. And damn, it's a very crowded field. Ime Udoka, one on the eh, and one on the eh, plus 700 leading the front. We talked about Houston earlier so far this season. They've been killing it. Joe Missoula, plus 750. Why? I don't fucking know. They call him the best team in basketball. Does it have anything to do with him? No. Mark Dagnell for the OKC Thunders at plus 800, 8 to 1 odds. Nick Nurse coaching his fucking ass off right now in Philly. Vibes could not be higher. He's plus 850, 8.5 to 1. Chris Finch got the Minnesota Timberwolves best defensive Team in the NBA, 10 to 1. Adrian Griffin, 12 to 1. Michael Malone, please say the Michael. You know, do not say Mike. Michael, Mike, do not say the Mike Malone, 14 to 1. Jason, I am just a fan, just like you. Kid, 14 to 1 for the Mavericks. They look good, but just wait until Luca starts to peter out. Jamal Mosley, woo! Woo! Orlando Magic, 20 to 1. And Rick Carlisle of the Indiana Pacers, 20 to one. Yudoka, like I said, leader in the clubhouse besides because the Rockets are shockingly good. And the only reason is Ime. One in the pink and one on the ah. But I think the Rockets will not be able to sustain this run. Them young boys, they're going to have to peter out. Otherwise, this might be a team that goes to the Western Conference Finals. I don't know. I'm either going to be really right or really wrong. There are three coaches, though, that are on, that are on the board that I love. First is Nick Nurse at plus 850. What he's doing in Philadelphia is nothing short of miraculous. He has brought stability to an organization that has no stability in just 10 games. Toxic fan base. Embiid is happy. Maxi's a superstar. He is happy. And Tobias, Tobias Harris has been really fucking good. Like really, really, really good to the point where I'm like, oh, Tobias Harris, 20 points on a night-to-night basis. He's probably going to be an all-star this year for the first time ever. All because Nick Nurse is steering the ship. Secondly, I like Chris Finch at 10 to 1. He's done what many people thought was the impossible. Find a way to make uh, a bonjour, a Rudy, uh, and Carl Anthony Towns work. I don't know how, but he has. He's also overseen the incredible growth of Ant Edwards into a top five player, top five guard at least in the league. If they continue being the number one defense in the league, he might just win this award. I think a lot of people like Chris Finch before the start of the season. And I was like, I don't know. And now I do. Finally, my long shot that I love is Rick Carlisle at 20 to 1. The Pacers sit fourth in the East. Fourth in the East. Insane offense. Very deep bench. They are slowly jettisoning dead weight. By the way, they bought out Daniel Tice yesterday. They may move Buddy Heald soon, hopefully. And so the backlog will lighten. But Carlisle manages to find the hot hand on just about every night. 
and usually it's someone different. You can't predict which pacer is going to go crazy, except for Tyrese Halliburton, who is a 20-15 and 15 machine. I think this guy's going to average 14, rebound, or 14 assists this year. Love the value on this bet. We will check back on this soon, but now it's time to find some big value, big, big value on the board. Take that Rick Carlisle bet and thank me later. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything that you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads, ensure that you can take on any adventure. Available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud. Standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together. Available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone. I've been so pumped to take a couple of friends with our road bikes to some of the trails nearby, and now I can bring the entire crew, my dog, and all of our gear with that third row. Learn more about the new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's move on to some news around the league. Woo-woo! Adam Silver has spoken. Draymond Green is suspended. Five games for his chokehold on Bonjour, Rudy. A lot of people thought he might get as many as 10 games, while our Dubs fans thought maybe one to two to maybe three games. Five games seems fair. When both fan bases, the non-Dubs fan base and then the Dubs fan base, are both upset, you know fairness has struck. It's very dumb how little self-control that Draymond has. We know that. And how knee-jerk the defense of him is by most Warriors fans. I don't know why they want to make excuses for him, but they do. He's absolutely nowhere near the menace of society that people think either. But he's absolutely like an out-of-control guy. Like a guy who, if Steph Curry is not playing, he's just going to go full nuclear. And it, it badly hurts his team. Steph is now injured. He's now missed two straight games. This team could very much use Draymond Green on the floor, but he says, fuck him. You know why? Fuck him. That's why. And they are now going to be without him for five games just after losing the heartbreaker to the Wolves in the IST, no less, to fall to 500. And by the way, turns out Rudy Gobert was right. Our friend at Spotrack uncovered this gem. If you count Green's ejection on Tuesday, seven of Draymond Green's last 11 ejections took place in games that Curry wasn't playing in. Imagine getting bodied by Rudy Gobert after a game and it being absolutely true. He just sent a truth bomb to your skull. Congratulations. Draymond Green has played 115 games without Seth. Seven ejections. 
6.1 ejection rate. He's played 652 games with Steph, 11 ejections, 1.7 ejection rate. In other words, Draymond Green gets ejected nearly four times more often when Steph Curry is not playing, which is objectively hilarious. Like backpack for Curry narrative, let that thing, good times keep on rolling. We'll know more about how damaging the suspension is in a couple of weeks, but worst case scenario, Golden State might be looking at a 7-11 and 11 record and staring up at a whole lot of teams when Draymond Green gets back just in time for a nationally televised games against who? The Sacramento Kings. Let's get around to some quick hitter news from around the league. We start in Clipperland where you guessed it, they still stink. They joined the Memphis Grizzlies uh, that have just been eliminated from the IST this season. They lost to the Nuggets without Jamal Murray, 111-108, and now are 0-6 in the James Harden era. So much to talk about, but what I wanted to briefly mention is why the Clippers' offense looks so stagnant. It comes from the mouth of babes. No, it comes from the mouth of Ty Lue himself, who told The Athletic, all training camp in the first five games, we've been telling our guys to make sure they cut. When Kawhi and PG are coming off the pick and roll to give them some space. But when James handles the ball, you know, we try to be more spaced, but just stay in our spots because he can make the pass. He can make the read. You know, like he can think the game. So that's going to be a little different for us, but that's going to take some time. So basically what you're saying is it's freeze tag out there. <laughs> when Kawhi and PG have the ball, you move effortlessly. But when you see that James has the ball, freeze tag, you're it. In other words, Ty Lue wanted to have a very active offense, and it worked well, except for they got a guy that you cannot flow with because he doesn't know what to do with movement off ball. Offense just stands around until Harden decides to drive and kick, where he either shoots, gets fouled, or kicks the ball out. It is ludicrously easy to defend, especially since Harden doesn't have that athleticism that he once had when he was in Houston. So unless this Clippers offense changes radically, it will be a lot of standing around and watching James Harden hold onto the ball and put spit on his shoes and air ball. They have an offensive rating of 111 in the Harden era, which is 27th in the NBA. That is not an anomaly. That is a fact, and that will remain a fact until major changes are made. One more quick hitter from the Clippers. Daniel Tice has reached an agreement with the Pacers on a buyout, and Shams is reporting he will sign with L.A. this week. Woo! Clippers also turned former Spurs lottery pick and no underwear wearer, dropping a little brain, showing brain, Josh Primo from a two-way to a guaranteed contract. Those two signings have pushed the Clippers over the $200 million payroll threshold. Only the second team ever to reach this rarefied air. Guess how much luxury tax will be on those two guys. Go ahead. Just guess. Just guess. Just guess. Come on. Guess. The Clipper tax bill rose from $99 million to $142.3 million with those two minimum salaries. That's disgusting. Imagine having that much money where you're willing to pay $50 million, $43 million for Daniel Tice and Josh Primo. Ugh. In other words, two vet minimum players have a nominal salary of $2.1 million, but they cost Steve Ballmer $43 million. Who knew how much 10 minutes a game could cost you, huh? 10 minutes. And you thought Harden was the only problem for the Clippers. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, Priceline. We welcome Samson Folk. Samson is the Toronto Raptors. We'll call him a guru. Why not? I mean, I think we can throw around the word guru. He's the lead writer for Raptors Republic. He has some dope-ass social handles that you should follow as well. Give him a follow, at Samson Folk with two Ks on Twitter. (laughs) And he's also putting the work in on YouTube at the Raptors Republic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, It's a real pleasure. I'm happy to talk hoops with anybody, everybody, and uh, especially you. Thanks for having me on. The Raptors are such an interesting team because the whole way that the roster has been constructed is very unique, as you know, right? Long, rangy, athletic guys that can do a little bit of everything. Uh, I think Nick Nurse liked that. I'm pretty sure Masai Ujiri still likes that. For for you, like how how do you feel that the Raptors' start of the season has been at five and six with with the new coach? I think that this is probably on par. They're on pace now, I guess, and they've had a tough schedule to start the season. To be fair, but I think they're on pace for what thirty seven wins at five and six. I think their over under was thirty six point five or thirty seven point five. They're kind of on pace for what their expectations were before the season started. You mentioned, you know, these guys, long rangy wings who can do a bit of everything. The biggest deficit they have there is shooting. And so for the third year in a row, the Raptors are a bottom five three-point shooting team. For the third year in a row, they're a bottom five half-court offensive team. And so these are the struggles that were expected. They're meant to succeed on defense and get out in transition and run. And they've basically hit all the marks that were expected of them. Everything this season has gone according to plan. And as many people expected, the plan isn't big or bombastic or anything like that. The plan is mostly to try and, I guess, pioneer a season where some of the younger players feel better about where they're headed. They get more possessions and the Raptors try and steer themselves into as many wins as possible because they do. Well, they did trade their first round pick of top six protected to the Spurs. So they're trying to win while also trying to instill a little bit of a different culture. So everything has kind of been on par so far. Do you think you can win if if not being a three-point shooting team is a feature, not a bug? Do you think you can win 50 games that way if this team continues to season? No, no way. Uh, I had my friend Blake Murphy when I was on his show kind of look this up. And basically the only teams that had won over 40, 45 games or over while shooting, I think less than 34% from three is like, the James Harden Rockets, which that's a lot of free throws to supplement that, and like the prime Russ OKC teams. Uh, These Raptors are not that, obviously. They don't have that type of talent at the top end driving them. And I just don't think any team can win that much without the three-point shots. We see them game to game. Maybe it goes well for one game, but grinding out possessions, having a lot of shots brick. uh, and, And teams respond to that by packing the paint and making every other type of shot more difficult. And uh, a lot of the stuff you do on offense doesn't work if you don't have the shooting to grease the wheels of offense. So uh, I would say it's a bug, not a feature, just a consistent <laughs> bug that they cannot squash. And it feels like Masai Ujiri just like won't get off it, you know? It's That's kind of accurate. I think that there's, you know, I asked Masai about this at the end of last season at his, at his presser, actually, where they fired Nick Nurse, kind of asking about their approach to drafting. And you know, it seems like they went after the long rangey guys because you can get a really good offensive rebounding wing in the second round or at the late first round. 
and you can't get shooting in those positions. Or if you do, it's usually, you know, a guy who kind of looks like me, who maybe the athleticism is going to hold up at the next level and it doesn't pay off. And they thought that they could teach shooting um, to everybody who came in. And they've had, you know, varying degrees of results as far as that goes. And mostly they haven't been able to especially teach movement shooting or dynamic pull-up shooting. And having a bunch of rote catch-and-shoot shooters isn't that good for offense either. So they lack a lot of dynamism offensively. And that is, I do think, like a result of their drafting process. And I suspect that Masai, his approach to that is probably coming towards an end. I think that they'll pivot. I'm assuming they will pivot. They will pivot away from him, or he will pivot away from it. I I think Masai kind of sets his own employment, like as far as the Toronto Raptors go. Like he, he, his draft heuristic, let's say, will change before I suppose the Raptors ever decided to move on from Masai. He he has carte blanche as far as I'm concerned. Wow. He's a big deal there. I mean, they they were like, the Raptors were bad for a long time. And then he had like six years of almost perfect front officing. And then they won a chip. He he can stay around till he passes away, man. He can do whatever he wants. We thought that was going to happen with Nick Nurse, though, too. And he got jettisoned so quick. Uh, I do really want to quickly, before we talk about Nick, talk about the best movement shooter in the draft that they decided to look over, which was Jordan Hawkins, who is absolutely right. bawling his fucking ass off right now. <laughs> Why Grady Dick and not Jordan Hawkins? So right after they drafted Grady Dick, they said that they had Grady Dick in his own uh, grouping because Grady Dick is a guy who, even in the pre-draft process, wowed a lot of teams with a lot of his progressive passing, his movement off ball, his rebounding. And he's he's bigger than Jordan Hawkins, and he's younger. Of course, Jordan Hawkins had one of the best college three-point shooting seasons in living memory. Maybe only like Sam Hauser with Virginia was comparable over the past five, six years. He's awesome. Uh, Jordan Hawkins is playing incredible. He's coming off of a lot of actions that benefit shooters, whereas Grady is more so kind of being plopped into lineups, trying to move around and just kind of create as an off-ball guy. Uh, The shot hasn't been going down as often as it should, but why they went for Grady is Grady has more size should project as a better defender down the line. Rangy yeah. good defender. <laughs> sure, sure. And they, uh, they'll they probably expect Grady to be able to handle in the pick and roll going forward, give them plus rebounding at the two or the three, and obviously hit shots. He, he is a very good shooter. Just we haven't yeah, seen he is. 11 games in. Yeah, he is. He was a 40% three-point shooter at Kansas. And the thing that I was told by scouts and people on front offices is that Grady Dick was going to need people and teammates that could set him up to get the ball in the right spot. And if they, he got that, he was going to be a tremendous shooter in the league right now. It doesn't feel like that's happening a hundred percent. What's your thoughts on Darko and, and how he's done so far? I think Darko is doing really well, given the fact that he's coaching a team that doesn't shoot the ball very well. Like the Raptors, Fred Van Vliet left and he was their best pull-up shooter by far. Dennis Schroeder has done well to shoot catch and shoot triples since he came in, but he doesn't provide the same level of gravity or spacing as Fred did. And the Raptors are trying to navigate packed paints all the time. And the Euro ball continuous screening, continuous motion offense that Darko is trying to instill and kind of girded by, I suppose, 0.5, a 0.5 basketball ethos guiding that. It's hitting a lot of walls because they're not able to with you can run a ton of off ball actions. You can run a ton of primary actions. But if you don't get guys to move, 
if guys go under screens, if they shoot the gap, um, you're not creating a defensive change. And winning in basketball on the offensive end is all about creating defensive change, creating rotation, and getting the advantages that come with that. So Darko has done, I think, a good job in how he's approached the defensive end, especially in how he swapped Pascal Siakam and Scotty Barnes' roles. Uh, the defense has been good. The transition offense, the stuff that they try to do as far as like filling the lanes, who goes to the corner, who shoots to the rim, that stuff has all been fantastic. But the half-court offense was destined to be very bad. I don't think there's a coach in the NBA that could coach these guys out of the, the bottom five. There's just not enough shooting, and you need shooting in the NBA. Yeah, and you're seeing that now Nick Nurse goes to a team with a ton of shooting. You know, Embiid can shoot, Maxi can shoot, Tobias can shoot, Kelly Oubre can shoot, yep. and, 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 right? And now all of a sudden, Nick Nurse looks like the coach of the year candidate. Like, to you, what's the biggest difference between Nick Nurse and Darko philosophically? Philosophically, I think that Nick is coaching more so, Well, and, and Darko has 11 games on his like his resume only at this point. And he's mostly been a developmental coach and he helped instill Phoenix's offensive game plan when he was there, Memphis's when he was there. But I think mostly Nick has been really good at coaching to the roster that he has. The Raptors really did play to mismatch, smash and bash basketball, which was how Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam like to operate. Now, I think that the Raptors are trying to eventually pivot to a different style of team. And Darko is coaching a system that is not necessarily for the players there right now, but the players they expect to have in the future. Ooh. And so Darko is a guy who I like, I, I like Darko a lot. The players love him. And that's the biggest change. Like Nick nurse, you wouldn't find me saying any of this last year, like saying that he's not a great coach saying that his X's and O's aren't good. He's a fantastic coach, a championship level coach. Um, Larry Bird had this quote about how a head coach has like three or four years before they lose the room, before you have to move on. And I think Nick Nurse, when he came back to Toronto, when we were in the room, he said it was a good time for both parties to move on from one another. And I think um, Darko will have his chance to coach this team, different variations of this Raptors team. And Nick Nurse is coaching a very talented Phoenix uh, uh, Philly team and doing like a fantastic job with it. So Nick Nurse is the championship level coach. And he deserves to be treated as such. Raptors fans will definitely remember him as such. And uh, he's having like a hell of a start. And Darko's doing pretty well as well. Head to head, I don't know, different teams, different contexts, all that kind of stuff. You mentioned Darko was beloved or is beloved by the team. Uh, it felt like there was when there was that reunion between the Sixers uh, and the Raptors twice where Scotty Barnes was like, oh, I didn't even see Nick over there. Uh, I guess I was just like playing. It feels like there's something there. Like yeah. we know that Nick wasn't loved in the locker room, but we really don't know why. Like the casual fan doesn't know why. What was behind all that? Nick is like gritty, gritty fella. He was very comfortable calling the players out in media. There was like many times last year where I was sitting in on a presser and he just let something fly. And not even, you know, because sometimes the media can prompt this stuff, leading questions. He would take it out of left field and just bring it in. And it would be things that the players would come out later and say, he didn't even talk to me about this. I'm hearing it I'm like in the presser. And there was also like old guard versus new guard in, you know, in Toronto. And that's some of the players felt there was a certain way to approach how they played. And that was more so in line with the coaching of last season. 
And some of the players kind of wanted a change, a disruption of sorts. And Nick wasn't going to give that to them. Some of the players weren't going to give that to them. And, you know, a couple of those players are gone. The coach is gone. And now it's born anew. And maybe they'll be able to, like, get together and be buddy-buddy in a few years. But as far as, like, Scotty Barnes' experience with Nick Nurse... It was like a couple stressful years with some like a lot of trade rumors, um, a lot of ups and downs, big trends, positive, big trends, negative. And he doesn't have that, you know, championship residue that like Fred or Pascal or OG had with Nick. So as far as like that, them running into each other's arms, like coach, player, you know, we haven't seen each other forever. That very clearly wasn't the thing. Like we were laughing it up when Scotty was like, oh, I don't know. I didn't see him. It's pretty funny as a response. But as far as like specifics, uh, I've never heard of anything specifically like those guys having a yelling match or, you know, shoving each other. Nothing like that. It's just tension grows, I guess, over time. Yeah. I saw this one you mentioned talking about um, throwing players under the bus. I remember last year, maybe around January, maybe March, I saw Nick out of left field said, Gary Trent sort of fits our system if he defends. But if he doesn't defend and get deflections, then he does not fit us at all. And so he better figure it out or he's going to be gone. And I remember being like, holy shit, dude, that (laughs) was unnecessarily savage. So I I know exactly what you mean. As it relates to Scotty Barnes, this is the whole reason – that I got interested in bringing you on was this very impressive thing that you did where you watched and you charted every single shot, every single assist and every single turnover from Scotty Barnes this season, which was nearly 600 possessions. And that in its own right, you just probably know his game better than almost anyone right now, as it pertains to this year. Like what are you learning about him through that and his development from you know, his time coming into the league to what he is now because he's been supremely productive. Yeah. So believe it or not, the the piece you're citing is actually from his rookie season. And from last season, I did the same thing. So I have two seasons where I've watched every Scotty possession. It's an insane amount of work. And it's just trying to figure out what stats don't tell you. So what I'm looking for in those pieces typically is like an advantage to assist. Because you know how sometimes people will there'll be, you know, a thread on Twitter where someone says like these stack collectors are boosting point guard X's assists or whatever, you know, these assists that are really just like you're handing the ball off. You're not helping guys. I look for advantage assists. So how often is Scotty Barnes putting like a bucket in somebody's lap? Who's guarding Scotty on some of these possessions? Because NBA.com's matchup data is like whoever guarded him for the longest amount on that possession is who it says guarded him on that possession. Whereas he could just get a switch at the end of the play, be guarded by someone else and score on them. So you just have to make sure you get more specific stuff, I guess. And so just looking for play type data as well, like all of his pick and rolls, all of his post-ups, what's he doing? What was the defensive coverage? And so I've learned a lot about his game and covered it like extensively from that point of view. And I, anytime I go and do a deep dive on Scotty Barnes, I come away thinking that he's destined for all-star status if not at least you know all nba status at some point and that the minutia the small things of his game he thinks the game at a really high level he has tremendous feel for what to do on the court and even this season he's impressed me and surprised me someone who's watched everything over and over 
with just how quick he's made that jump as a jump shooter, some of his handle improvements, and overall making that jump to north of 20 points per game, like 10 boards, six assists, and shooting the three this well. He's been incredible. Uh, I can't say enough about how much he's able to surprise me, even though I've seen so much. You think part of that's the new system or no? Part of it is the new system. Part of it is just he's much better. I think his mid-range pull-ups right now, he's shooting, I think, 65 or 66 percent. Um, Kevin Durant's high watermark, I think, is 63 percent as far as what the NBA has been tracking. He's also shooting like almost 38 percent from three, which is 10 percent higher than what he shot last year. And a big thing is that the Raptors this season are really good at pushing into transition off of misses from the other team. And since Fred Van Vliet is gone, who was Fred is good, but he's a bad transition player. Scotty is one of the best transition players in the league. So Scotty's getting more transition possessions. These are all juicing his numbers. So some of it is, you know, Darko putting Scotty in more pick and roll possessions. He's done well in those. Some of it is being emboldened to push more. And some of it is just genuine skill progression. It's all kind of coalesced into a like a very, very strong season to start. Yeah, and he's been super consistent too. That's what I've liked about him. Mm-hmm. I saw that the Raptors are almost the least efficient when Jakob Pertl is on the floor. And I don't really know why. What's happening with Jakob Pertl? What is gumming up the offense when he's there? Shooting is important in the NBA. And Jakob Pertl... I've watched a lot of these guys on the Raptors go through the motions in practice. The Raptors, you know, Nick Nurse is on the, it's the company is called Noah. It's a shooting um, analytics company. And they have this giant board that tracks like the arc, the spin, the trajectory, all this kind of stuff. And I watched all these guys, the specifics of their jump shots over time. And Jakob is the only guy who I look at and I say, that's hopeless. Like he's just never going to shoot the ball well. And teams react that way. Basically, if Jakob is on the court, you have a guy, a goalie in your driving lane. For example, the Raptors last season, when Pascal, prior to Jakob, when Pascal would drive, they he saw a second defender 63% of the time. Um, the last time I looked at this stat, which was, I think, seven games into the season, with Jakob there and a lot of last season, he's seeing a help defender on over 80% of his drives. There's there's basically no open driving lanes for either Scotty or Pascal Siakam. And these are two really good driving wings. So these guys are being asked to take more jumpers. They're being asked to be more creative, navigate more bodies in the lane. And they don't have as many shooters to pass out to to kind of convert on these shots. And the result of that, obviously, is that when Jakob is on the floor, the half-court offense is tough. The offense overall is tough because he's not much of a transition threat either. And that's kind of the big answer. Jakob is a good player who can set good screens. You can run some high post hub stuff through him and and he can offensive rebound. But as far as the compounding effects of not being able to shoot mixed with teams are eager to help off of both Scotty and Pascal, even though Scotty's been shooting really well, um, he doesn't have the respect yet. This all compounds into teams just sitting in the paint. And that is the negative aspect of Jakob's game. And the Raptors have to be really creative to try and get around this, this lack of spacing. Yeah, and, and Jakob offensively, in terms of his production, has been pretty good too. Defensively, uh, the Raptors are a lot better when he's on the floor than off. So it's it's kind of a conundrum. You mentioned that probably a lot of these pieces are going to be gone. And then the system, or some of these pieces, will be gone. He's coaching for a, a system for future pieces versus now pieces, uh, Darko. 
in your opinion, who ends up being gone and like which pieces need to move off of the chessboard in order for Darko's system to operate with maximum productivity? I think it's more so about the players coming in than it is the players coming out. Like they just need more shooting. It's not an indictment of, let's say, Scotty's ability to fit in or OGs or Pascal's like these guys just need to be surrounded by more shooting and they're not. But the guy who I think is most likely not to be around next year is Pascal Siakam. Um, I had a like a, a back and forth on media day with Masai Ujiri when I was asking, you know, Masai came out and said, now's the time to talk to OG and Gary about their extensions. Was fully willing to say, we will we'll offer it. We want to discuss. And he it had been reported, not said openly, that they weren't willing to offer Pascal Siakam an extension. And it had also been suggested that Pascal and his team would have signed the max extension, not a super max, just the max four years, 192 million. And I asked Masai, you know, why well, proposed it as like, it's odd to have an all-star slash all NBA player and not offer the extension. Even if you think they're going to, you know, deny it or say they're going to try for the super max to not offer it. And Masai echoed the exact same sentiment that was reported from a source, which was that they were waiting to see how Pascal performed in the system. And that seemed odd to me because the Raptors, their best free agent signing to this point is maybe like per value, a biannual exception guy like Bismack Biombo. Maybe per, per the dollar, it'll end up being Dennis Schroeder. They don't sign all-stars. They don't sign all NBA guys. So how could you go and let that guy go to market and not offer him an extension? And they said they wanted their all-star slash all NBA level guy to prove it, which is odd. It, they can do it, but it is odd. It's not something that happens very often. And all of that, to me, suggests that Pascal, via trade, via free agency, whatever it ends up being, is by far the most likely guy to, to leave the Raptors when it comes around to next season. I don't think there's a strong likelihood that he's there. Things can always happen. Who knows? But that's kind of my vibe and thoughts. What's odd, too, was before OG and Anobi got hurt, I think Pascal Siakam's usage was way down. It feels like he, before the injury to OG, because he's been much more involved since the injury, had a great game against the Wizards. He went absolutely bonkers. Um, just kind of has been there, right? Like, not really doing a lot. So very hard to prove yourself when the system does not put you in a in a position uh, to be your best self. Yeah, it's um, the driving thing is that, you know, going back to seeing so many extra bodies, that's a factor. But also, I looked at this after seven games. I guess we're four games deeper now. But after seven games, as far as uh, Pascal's comps for touch time and touches, his closest, closest comp in the NBA was Svi Mihailuk, which is odd. He had lower yeah. usage then I think he was the 122nd player as far as usage percentage um, in the NBA. He was having 20 less touches a game. His drives were way down and he was setting three times as many off ball screens. Some of that is that they're setting more screens in the offense, but some of that is he's just being positioned off ball a lot more. Since then, you're correct. Um, part of it is OG's injury. Part yeah. of it is, is that the Raptors were looking at a lot of ugly offense, found some identified some mismatches and gave Pascal two games, one against the Mavericks, one against the Wizards, where he just got heaps and heaps of post possessions. And he scored what I think like 70 points combined in those two games with a healthy amount of assists. 
So he found games where he could succeed, but overall, he's definitely taking a dip in usage. Scotty's taking that step. Dennis Schroeder actually leads the team in touches, touch time, dribbles per touch, all that kind of stuff. So there's been a, a seismic shift, and he's trying to succeed in that. But also, he's missed like 14 three-pointers in a row. There's room for Pascal to be better within this role. There's a there's a bit of a marriage between not utilizing him as best you can, and then also he's not playing as well as he can within this, let's say, smaller role. OGN and OB has been, for many years now, openly frustrated with his role. Where is he at with his role now? You won't get him to say it. Like, he, he it's like an open secret frustration. It it's, it's one that you can kind of, you can pull, you read the tea leaves, let's say, right? Because anytime you get more shot attempts, typically that equates to more dollars on the contract. OG is a guy who, he got, he's been underpaid for the four years on this contract. He got like 18 million a year, which is insane. His, his agent failed him on that contract extension, as far as I'm concerned. And so he obviously, and rightfully so, is looking for this big bag at the end of this season. I think he's going to get it, but also in a Raptors, you know, the Raptors weren't the best team. There's not a hierarchy of like a super, superstar that he's sitting behind. And he's saying some of these possessions in the offense should be mine. Let me try and kind of put more points per game on my docket, see how that translates into future offers or whatever. And this is all kind of done under the guise of agent talk, report here, report here. And that's what I asked him on media day about his shot attempts. And of course he said, I'm just doing what the team wants me to do. He has not gotten a ton of shot attempts as far as like his role this season. He hasn't taken a big step in usage. Um, he's just been kind of like the good soldier going out there playing the role. And he's so damn good at his role that he's going to get paid regardless. Um, but I think maybe there would be some politics on as far as like the Raptors three free agents it would be hard to see, like, again, that all three come back because there there is a, a want for more shot attempts amongst the three. There is a want to, like, step into a larger role. And maybe that role isn't available if all three come back, you know. And that would be a very expensive middling team if all three are back. Yeah, especially considering that we both agree that you can't get 50 wins playing the way that they play. And no. those three are three-fifths of the starting five. I'm curious, why, why is Masai Uziri so content to let players walk for nothing instead of moving them before they're free agents. We saw this with Kyle Lowry. I know that there was a sign and trade, but that was bullshit. Um, Fred Van Fleet, we saw. Yeah, I asked Masai about this on media day, which is the last time I think he spoke. And I tried my best to grill him about it. And he said, if you're talking about Fred Van Vliet, that was my mistake. He was like, we messed up on that one, letting him go for nothing. But he also said, you know, he had he framed it as like he had an opportunity elsewhere. He took that opportunity and certainly he did. He's also said in the past that he doesn't consider the trade deadline a good time to make decisions for the future. That's what he said at the last trade deadline. He also said that, you know, Delano Banton was an important part of the future going forward. And then Delano went to the Boston Celtics for not that Delano is factoring into the Celtics a bunch or that he was going to factor into the Raptors. It's just like guys say a lot when they get up on that, you know, that pulpit, that stand. And Messiah said a lot of different things. A lot of it like conflicts. But I think that they didn't expect like they tried hard to re-sign Fred. They didn't expect Houston to throw that big a bag. And maybe like a bit of that is arrogance, you know, thinking 
you have enough pedigree within the organization to keep these guys. Fred will want to come back. And maybe there's an expectation that they can get Pascal on a cheaper deal. Maybe they think they can do it again with OG. But it is almost unprecedented to have that many shot attempts per game going out the door into. And like, here's the big thing. A lot of teams face this kind of thing, but one or two of these guys will be in restricted free agency. You just match it, piece of cake, you go home. Every single one of these guys is unrestricted, could leave at a moment's notice. And it, it should be interesting. I don't know what happens at the trade deadline. I wonder if Masai would let the possibility of letting another all-star slash all-NBA talent go for nothing. Um, or if he's like, no, I got to hedge my bets and make the deal at the deadline. Um, that goes against some of what he said in the past. But Masai has also done a lot of unexpected things, usually trading to become a better team, not to rebuild. But it's um, it should be interesting. His His track record says that he might try and make it happen in free agency. But I guess we'll see. Yeah. And there's a lot of teams that want Pascal, a lot of teams that want OG. And I'm sure there's going to be teams that think that that one of those pieces make them a contender either mm -hmm. or really quick, not to go right back to Pascal, but you mentioned some of his comments that were strange at uh, media day. And I forgot to ask you, did it feel like to you, he was taking shots at Pascal Siakam being selfish? Cause it felt like that to me. I don't, I don't actually think it was. I think that they were using, you know how teams can kind of get caught up on words and at a press conference, there'll be like a word that's really sticking around. I think that it was unwise to use the term selfish to brand the old team. And that's kind of what I asked him too. I was like, you're, you got, you're saying that the team was selfish, but you also tried to re-sign Fred. Like you tried to bring the team back. So does that say that Nick Nurse was the one imbuing selfishness into the players? Don't know. But, or, or are you saying that Fred was part of it? Then why would you try and bring him back and offer him, I think like what, 36 million or something? Those types of things don't really jive. I don't think he was calling Pascal selfish. I think it was just messy the way that it was communicated. And also right after Masai left and Pascal came up and Pascal was asked about being selfish. I can't remember the reporter who asked it of him, but it was like a leading question and it wasn't framed properly. Like the reporter insinuated that Pascal was being called selfish when I don't think that's what Masai was saying. But regardless, I think it's messy and unneeded to just throw selfish around constantly about these guys because that stuff permeates in fandom and that stuff permeates in media. And if you're not like paying really close attention, who would blame you for hearing that the general, the president, the guy who's on the board is saying like selfish, 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 selfish. And the guy who left with the most shot attempts, the guy who's there with the most shot attempts, they're obviously going to catch that from fans and media all the time. So I think it was sloppy, but I don't think it was intentional. And if it was, then like, woof, dude, please. You shouldn't be talking about guys that way. Yeah, no yeah. doubt. Especially if you have carte blanche and you're a made man, like you should probably not be sloppy uh, or your reputation is going to continue to take a hit, which it has. Like outside of Toronto, Masai Ujiri's reputation is falling off. It feels like he's holding on to his prior success and the moves that have happened post-championship run have just been bad. One of the moves that did not happen that we thought might happen was Damian Lillard to Toronto. How close was that happening? I don't have a sense of how close it was. Like you hear that there was a framework. I mean, I guess, who was it? Shams tweeted out that it was like, he obviously had a, a draft of what the package was going to be. 
tweeted it out and he probably didn't get that from nowhere. So you'd have to assume they were maybe not the one yard line, like the two yard line, Milwaukee beat it. And, you know, I just saw Dame last night have an awesome game against the Raptors. He was incredible. He completely broke them down. Their pick and roll coverage was not good enough for him. And yeah, I'm assuming it was close. They were probably in the ballpark. And I would assume that that was a package around OG Ananobi because I can't, well, maybe it wasn't, maybe the, maybe the Milwaukee package beat the Gary Trent Jr. plus stuff package. But um, yeah, I think that they probably, if I had to guess, held OG and Scotty off the table and they were trying to get Dame for like cents on the dollar or whatever the terminology is. Grady Dick and no shade to Grady Dick, but like yeah, bring something Gary like Trent that. back and some random um salary stuff you think a trade happens before like do you think that this team looks to get better like a zach levine uh or somebody to help this team with shooting if you had to guess i think it's unlikely unless again like the sense on the dollar trade presents itself and they can keep all of their wings plus get zach then <laughs> then it's a distinct possibility but this is just the this is the greediness and this is like the unwillingness to part with players that that's those are the like reports that come out about Masai, right is like overvaluing his guys lowballing all the time i would presume that zach levine isn't considered like the ultimate fit next to scotty going forward so they probably wouldn't risk anything to get him there if they can get him for however much i mean fine maybe that it's in play but I, I don't think there's a distinct possibility of it if i had to guess so, okay, before I let you run, what's your prediction for this season? Record playoff appearance? Like Record like playoff appearance and who comes back? Okay, let's say 40 wins. Maybe that manifests into the 10th seed. We get a play-in game, maybe two. Pascal doesn't play as a Raptor next year. OG is back with a very large contract, perhaps the max. Um, because other teams are going to apply that pressure too. And I'm going to say also Gary Trent Jr. may be a, a sign and trade. That's Woo! that's my guess, maybe. Thank you so much for joining. We covered a lot of ground, I feel like. Certainly, uh, Samson, yeah. Samson Folk, find them on Raptors Republic as well as at Samson Folk with two Ks on Twitter. Find them on YouTube. The man's very smart about basketball. Uh, so smart, he even calls himself the coach. Thanks again for joining us. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much for having me on. It's uh, It's been a blast. That's all the time that we have for this episode of The Heat Check. Come back Monday. Check out the feed for past episodes and mini episodes, which drop unexpectedly like fall leaves from the sky. Fall is right around the corner, and it's getting cold out there, folks. Please subscribe. Please like. Please download. Please tell the pizza delivery guy who might be a process server. And follow us on social at this heat check and at Trista Crick on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll see you next time.